Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. It's not every day that a large law firm goes under, but this week, Big Law Fixture, Sedgwick LLP, formally closed its main office, capping off a decline that stretched back more than a year. But what exactly went wrong? We'll be joined by senior business of law reporter Sam Reisman to answer that question. And stick around to the end of the show for our review of the New York Bar Association's Preet Bahara musical. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So, what's going on, guys? Well, I had, I mean, this, what you hear here is just me tearing up all of my government shutdown jokes, because they had <laughs> right. they had the temerity to just take a long weekend, those guys. Yeah. Uh, you just threw away all your notes, which we may need in a few short planned, weeks. You know, I think this whole thing was contrived. It's kind of like when you're like, oh, like, I'm feeling sick. Uh, like, I might be, out of, <laughs> might be out of work on Monday. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, a, a functioning government is is nominally good, I think, uh, but uh, not great for when you're trying to make jokes at the top of a podcast. Uh, so that's out the window. I did also want to say, just sort of keeping tabs on the legal world as it resides in pop culture, the Academy Award nominations were announced this week. Yes. And there's one in the major categories, uh, there's one sort of legal representation in there. Denzel Washington was nominated for playing an attorney in uh, Roman J. Israel Esquire. Wow. Which so, I have not yet watched, but it's on my list. Well, there was, I mean, not to not to like snitch on everybody, there was a there was like a plan for us to see it and talk about it on the podcast, but uh, nobody saw it. And that's actually representative of what happened with that movie. It was kind of a surprise. I did see it. Uh, Denzel plays a lawyer who has, uh, who's basically just awkward and has weird interpersonal skills, and this presents challenges for him huh. as he uh, navigates. Why don't we just do the whole show where Alex explains the plot of this film? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's 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 pretty garden variety Denzel stuff for the last like five years, where yeah. the movie is not very good, sure, but he gives like a, a really performance. compelling performance. Well, Fences was good. I like yeah. that one too. Yeah, I mean, he exerted a little more. Cre- he was he directed that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is this is very much in the flight. Uh, sure. Like flight bo- was flight of, was flight yeah. was a staunch seventy Rotten Tomatoes movie. Yeah, just like not not good, not bad. Flight, Book of Eli. Oh right, I saw like, that one too. Yeah. Uh, even like the Equalizer, like you know stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, and if you have enjoyed this bit of uh, legal film talk, I would just say stay tuned. Moving on from movies to coffee. Great. All right, sure. Natural. Uh, Starbucks <laughs> settled the fight this week with uh, the largest mall operator in the country. Uh, after a judge ruled late last year that the coffee chain had to keep dozens of its failed Tivana stores open, even though Starbucks wanted to close them all down. So it's it's like th- th- those are fun facts to talk about. Yes. But it's also sort of interwoven with this like retail apocalypse that we've all been hearing a oh, ton yeah. about and mm-hmm. heard a ton about over the holiday season. So it's an interesting story. I spent six weeks in the summer of 2005 as a waiter, excuse me, as a safari guide at Rainforest Cafe. So I bring a lot of, uh, you know, academic curiosity to beleaguered retail shops. Rainforest Cafe. My name is Alex. Can I get you a safari beverage to start? (laughs) That's that's exactly what it was like. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I have an interest in this uh, and I think anybody does. Uh, So what exactly happened? Like, let's 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 walk back through the rewind to last summer. Yeah. Starbucks announced that it's going to close all 379 Tivana stores. They were tea-themed places. Right. Starbucks had acquired a couple years earlier. Um, they were going to close all of them this year. Simon Property Group, which is the biggest real estate investment trust in the country and also the biggest mall operator in the country, as I mentioned up top, they sued Starbucks for violating its lease agreements. The, the lawsuit was the case of a landlord asserting 
a provision that is in many of these leases, but, but isn't, this is weird, doesn't often right? come up. Yeah, because it seems really weird to to have something that would come up a lot where it's like, you're not profitable or you want to close for some reason, but you can't. Right. Well, more more often what happens is they come up with an early termination because you are you are breaking, you're, yeah. you're violating your lease, like you're, you're trying to break your lease early, but you come up with an agreement where you pay X amount of money and the it's in everyone's best interest to move forward rather than having a court fight. They try to help find someone to fill the spot and everything else. But there is this provision in a lot of these retail rental leases Mm -hmm. that's called a continuous operations covenant, which requires a tenant, even if they were to say like, like break the lease and a court were to, to award them damages of all of the money left on the lease, the continuous operations covenant has a specific remedy that says you have to keep operating the store like the 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 harm is not that you're depriving the mall of the of of the rent it's that it's harmful for you to leave this big store open in a mall sort of without notice which i guess makes sense because we've all had this experience where you walk into a mall and you haven't been there in like six months or something and you see a bunch of empty stores and you start thinking like what's going on in this place i'm not coming back and there's all sorts of other weird stuff too where like different uh, other tenants negotiate how much they're going to pay based on who's next to them. Like if you right. are looking, because think about it, it's, it makes sense when you think about it that like you, you want to be next to like a flagship department store. Exactly. I mean, so we yeah. at Rainforest Cafe got the runoff from that <laughs> Sam Goody overflow. Sure, I mean, sure. that's classic stuff. That's I mean, those jokers over at the Hard Rock didn't get any of that. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Uh, so, so this actually went to court. Then it did. So in November, um, so Simon moved for a preliminary injunction, uh-huh. and in November, an Indiana state judge granted the preliminary injunction ordering Starbucks to keep these 77 stores open. Good quote. Quote, if the court were to allow Starbucks to close down its stores, abandoning these obligations in the lease agreements, the court would be relieving Starbucks of the failed risk it took merely because Tivana has now proven to be unprofitable to Starbucks. <laughs> to allow such a, com- a company such as Starbucks to do so would have grave implications on the public's confidence in entering future contracts. Owning so, the libs by by forcing companies to stay open in malls. I love it. So uh, <laughs> Starbucks reached a settlement this week to end the case. A lot of people had speculated that this would go to appeal and it would be this big case. They reached a settlement to end the case. So they probably worked out some agreement to deal with these stores. But it means that this ruling is not going to get challenged. So it, it it leaves it on the books, which is which is an interesting turn of events. What are the we've we've gestured toward what's happening in the industry. What does this all mean? Why are why, why are we talking about this thing that weird weird thing happened with Starbucks? Right. Well, I mentioned it up top that th- there's this this huge downturn in in the brick and mortar retail industry. Yeah. It's been called the retail apocalypse and we heard a lot about it during the holiday season cuz more and more people were buying stuff online. And it's bigger than that. It's it's you know people are moving their money to Amazon to e-commerce, but it's also that these these chains over leveraged themselves. The mm-hmm. the the landowners over leveraged themselves. Everyone was built on this idea that that just the internet was never going to happen. Yeah, and that, people so it, will keep coming to us. So there's a lot of reasons for why this is happening. People are spending more money on 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 experiences rather than so that it's, we're we're in this big downturn for the retail industry. But that means that this exact scenario that happened is going to keep happening, yeah. and and more and more that that you know that, that companies are going to keep trying to pull out of their leases, and landlords are keep are going to continue to have to sort of scramble to deal with it. It's such a funny battle that's going on because, like, even if 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 we have a decision, well, not not a decision yet, but if there's you know findings that that suggest you can keep comp- you can like require companies to stay there. But there's nothing that says that you have to require them to be profitable, right? Of and it's not gonna and it's not gonna reverse the macroeconomic trend. What it no. is gonna do is figure out who is gonna get stuck holding the bag. Yeah, okay. that's what's interesting. That it was the first ever ruling where a non 
anchor, meaning like not the big department store, not this giant. These had been enforced. These specific remedies had been enforced against them in the past, but it had never been enforced against little stores, little yeah. non-anchors like mm-hmm. a Tivana. So it shows that they're taking these like radical steps because they were the ones getting screwed when these companies would all pull out and their mall would be empty. So, you know, as I've mentioned throughout this, these things are in other contracts and you can bet that other landlords are going to be looking through their contract the next time a big chain says, well, we want to shut down 140 stores in the next six months. If you've got 50 of those stores as a, as a real estate corporation, you're going to take a hard look at what's in your contract and see if you can get some leverage in, in the negotiations for how you do that, where you, you say, look, a judge said that I can make you stay open. Nice. So like, <laughs> it, it, it definitely impacts on how this is going to happen going Changes forward. Changes the game. Yeah. yeah. So from strip malls to strip clubs, fam, here we go. Uh, Stop me if you've heard this before, but uh, Federal Appeals Court has uh, sort of given a firm rebuke to a company for trying to force its employees uh, into private arbitration when they've raised complaints about wages. Yes, We've never talked about arbitration again. We're back to arbitration clauses. But the twist this time is that it involves... uh, the world of exotic dancing and strip clubs, which uh, is not exactly a bastion of progressive labor jurisprudence. Okay, so, so you lost me at arbitration agreements. That's like a boring word. Sure. But then you got me with exotic dancers, so okay. I'm back in. So what's going on here? Today we are talking about this decision that comes out of the Fourth Circuit um, that basically you know, sh- wagged its finger at a South Carolina strip club operator. The company's called Crazy Horse Saloon and Restaurant Incorporated. Sounds about right. Yeah. For uh, for enforcing arbitration agreements against its dancers after these dancers had already opted into a class action that challenged the company's wage mm-hmm. policy. There's the twist. Yeah. What was the class action? Uh, it began like a lot of class actions, uh, especially those involving exotic dancers, uh, where they, the company had basically said they were classified as contractors mm-hmm. instead of full-time employees, uh, and therefore they weren't being paid you know, minimum wages or overtimes. They basically said, we're just surviving on customers' tips, right. and this is in violation of the Fair Labor Standards Act. We've seen lawsuits begin like that hundreds of times, sure. thousands of times. Um, that case chugged along for a while, for about a year, and then right after discovery closed, that is when Crazy Horse, the company, started circulating these agreements to its dancers. And these agreements basically said, if you have any beef with us about your wages, you're going to settle it in arbitration. You're not a lot. You're ba- you, they basically shut off the channel of litigation to them, even like explicitly naming by name this case that had already named the case by name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, wow. it, it, it explicitly singled out. So you cannot join this case. Or anything like that. Because we're used to hearing about these pretty regularly. A, a lot of arbitration agreements are out there uh, for workers, mm-hmm. but it's not common for them to be circulated <laughs> in the middle of litigation. No. Yeah, this no, seems no. like so labor seems lawyers like didn't must do a good job. have gone crazy over this. Any, right? any, any labor lawyer who is listening now it certainly understands that the game is kind of up here, but it's an interesting <laughs> case anyway. Uh, the appeals panel, much like the judge before it, you know, basically just was aghast that the club would. Uh, proffered the arbitration clauses mm-hmm. in this way, and they basically said that they they weren't they, they were actually using them you know in the opposite of the way that they're supposed to be intended and kind of like kicking the can down the road of litigation, kind of forcing these people to like continue to litigate the case, basically using the arbitration clause not as a way to get like a speedy result, which is what it's supposed to be. For. That's what it's right. supposed to be, but rather as like a backdrop in case something bad happens in court. The money quote is as follows, and it kind of sums up the whole thing really. Uh, really neatly crazy horse employed judicial proceedings to pursue a litigation strategy for over three years and it did so to the detriment 
of the plaintiffs in this case. The only possible purpose of the arbitration agreements then was to give Crazy Horse an option to revisit the case in the event that the district court issued an unfavorable opinion. So you can see how they're basically saying, and even in the uh, elsewhere in the opinion, they said, you know, there are definitely proper uses for arbitration agreements. Sure. But it's definitely not this. They so, call it an insurance policy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And right, right. this has got to be weird, right? Is this just some like one-off, like outside the realm of how this normally goes? I mean, definitely, as we've discussed, the way that this goes. I mean, arbitration clauses and arbitration agreements are plenty controversial just when applied as intended. Right. Uh, we've discussed earlier about there, there's a Supreme Court case that's going to tackle that sort of squarely on the merits uh, later this term. But, you know... At least what we can say now with this, uh, and we knew it before, but with certainly firmed up with this decision, it's like, even if you're going to have one, there are certain strictures that you have to right. to adhere to. The other thing, and this is just sort of, they're not tange- they're not explicitly related, but there has been something of a of a budding sort of labor, uh, not I wouldn't call it an uprising, but some some hints of labor progress for exotic dancers in New mm-hmm. York. Here, you've seen a patchwork mm-hmm. of like work stoppages right. for uh, you know tip pooling uh, pr- practices in New York clubs, where this, there's tons of them. It's a lot of money. Um, so you know we you know we, we we began by joking around a little bit, but you know if, if you're a labor lawyer and you're you know trying to you know keep your keep your finger on industries where interesting cases are sure. popping up, definitely something you want to keep an eye on. At the end of 2016, Cedric had 271 attorneys in the U.S., but after a year of defections and office closures, the entire firm is now shuttered. What went wrong? To answer that question, we're joined by Sam Reisman, our senior business of law reporter, who spent a big part of last year following the Cedric saga. Welcome, Sam. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So set everybody up here. Can you tell the people who might not know who was Cedric as a firm and what happened to them over the past year? Sure. Cedric is, was a San Francisco-based firm uh, founded in 1933. Uh, and at its height, it had, uh, I believe, 16 offices uh, throughout the U.S., including offices in London, Paris, and uh, Zurich. Mm-hmm. And they were a- an AmLaw 200 firm, or I guess to keep it on brand, a Law 360-400 firm. Thank you. Thank you. And they, they were in that, that second 100, that 100 to 200 sure. range. That's about, that's about the size of the firm that they were. Um, they went on a spree uh, in the you know, earlier this decade where they opened a number of offices throughout the U.S., mm-hmm. including offices in Houston, uh, Austin, Miami. Uh, they partnered with a, an office in Bermuda, uh, Fort Lauderdale, D.C., and Seattle. Right. Um, and they were always headquartered in, in San Francisco. That's where they were founded. That's where their roots were very strong. They had offices in Los Angeles and uh, Irvine, California. So this all sounds very positive. We've got a big, respected firm. It's been around for you know, years and years, and they're and then it all acquiring goes things. Wrong. Yeah, we've got a twist in the story, <laughs> because this does sound like what you want to hear about a firm. Sure. It's big and respected. They're acquiring new things and growing. Exactly. What happened? So they begin to close offices slowly and begin to lose partners slowly, beginning in about 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. 2017 kicks off with 40 attorneys leaving the firm within a single week. That includes a group in Dallas that goes to Drinker Biddle, and that includes a group in New York and New Jersey that forms its own new boutique led by Michael Tannenbaum, who was until February 2015 the chair of the firm and right. was actually there when they were opening a number of these offices. And that's pretty unusual, right, for the, it's the stri- former chair to, to it, leave and start his own firm that close to when he was the chair? It's certainly unusual for the chair emeritus to leave a firm so soon after you know, no, you know, stepping down. Um, and... 
by all accounts, he was a huge rainmaker and he was one of Sedgwick's biggest producers. And uh, combined with a group that left for Drinker Biddle, this was a pretty big blow uh, for Sedgwick to kick the year off. And then it didn't stop there. They were yeah. losing yeah. attorneys to a number of firms throughout the year. And uh, it, it continued and continued and snowballed. And in uh, fall of this year, some of the biggest groups, including former and current office managing partners at Sedgwick, mm-hmm. went to Kennedy's, which is a, a global uh, insurance firm uh, that's based in the UK. And then on the morning of November 20th, which was the Monday before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. Sedgwick employees were summoned to a conference room in their San Francisco office, and there was a dial-in number, and the partners informed them that the firm would be closing at the end of the year. Yikes. And and by by according to my sources, it was a pretty somber affair. Yeah. Uh, and there was some crying, and you know, but I I think you know the writing was kind of on the wall. Yeah. For for the firm, if you were looking at what was happening. Uh, over the course of this year, um, the people who were leaving, especially near the end, some of them were lifers. Some of them, you know, they had begun their practices at Sedgwick. Sure. Some of them, as I said, were current and former office managing partners, people with like real established positions within the firm. Um, there were rumors and reports that the firm was attempting to merge or be acquired. And obviously those did not come to fruition. So, Sam, you wrote a great story this week about the sort of looking at what drove the, the the firm into this. You know, we watched it from the outside, but, and you, you, you let off with a really great quote from someone saying that, that it was, you know, that what happened to Sedgwick has happened to firms that have grown quickly and had trouble assimilating other offices into the firm's main presence. Um, can you, can you sort of explain Sedgwick, like, you know, what, how their growth sort of led to some of these problems? Sure. I mean, I think it's difficult to say without without having been there, but a lot of attorneys who I spoke to over the course of reporting these stories told me that it was a firm that that didn't have that, that sense of cohesion mm-hmm. and that real sense of partnership, especially when it came to its newer lateral partners and it's uh, it's it, when it tried to branch out into new practice areas. You know, these one attorney who was a lateral and left shortly after joining, only three years after joining, told me that they were there to start a new practice that the firm didn't have, and Mm -hmm. it just didn't work out. And they had nothing but good things to say about the firm, but it just didn't work out. And that seems kind of indicative of, you know, I don't want to extrapolate from that person's experience to what the firm experienced as a whole, but it was striking how many people I spoke to in the course of these stories told me that the firm really didn't seem able to assimilate all these new offices, even though they had you know, opened all of them in a relatively short span of time. I mean, we've all been there. Whenever those West Coast Bureau people come in for the holiday party, I'm like, who are these losers? <laughs> what are they doing here? No, I'm kidding, of course. Um, now we, we love you, yeah, West Coast team. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're wonderful people and wonderful workers. Um, we saw from, there was a huge, you know, exodus of people from the outside, but I thought it would be good to talk to you about, you know, like you said, you talked to many former attorneys there about what was going on in the house. Uh, just give us, if you have any sort of anecdotes that you picked up along the way, I think people would like to hear them. So I think specifically looking at 2017, which is when you know things start to yeah, hit, really hit, started, hit, yeah. hit the fan, the firm began investigating the possibility of uh, merging or more likely being acquired in spring of this year. Uh, according to sources I spoke to, it was pretty clear that they needed to uh, be acquired or strike some sort of deal or by the end of the year or the firm just wasn't going to succeed as turned out happened um and you can imagine that not going over well sure and and there was you know from a lot from talking to a number of former partners in the firm there was this sort of recurring motif that the executive committee which was in charge of negotiating any potential Mm -hmm. deal wasn't really communicating the the progress of those negotiations and you know 
deadlines were missed and month after month and suddenly no deal's been reached and no deal's been announced and there were rumors and reports that were kind of rippling through the firm and a, a lot of people who left cited this air of uncertainty um, and it, it, again I think it creates a snowball effect where you you start we, we start we started these these stories by asking why is everyone leaving and at some point the answer becomes people are leaving because people are leaving <laughs> uh, yeah because because you know the the you know the, the partners of a firm are not just you know employees, they are the firm. They are a constituent part of the firm. When they leave, they take a chunk of the firm and more to the point, a chunk of the firm's business with them. Uh, and you know, that has an effect. Did you also see with um, sort of putting those two things together, people are leaving because more people are leaving, but we also talked about how they were trying to assimilate all these new lateral hires and mm-hmm. small groups. Was part of the problem that those people are not as invested in the firm. I mean, they're new and they're a small group, so maybe they're quick to shed when the first sign of trouble comes along. Sure. One theme that came up in conversations with people uh, who who used to be at the firm is that there was definitely this rift between um, the lifers, the people who started at Sedgwick right out of law school and built a career there. Um, Michael Healy joined the firm in 1980, straight out of law school, and he became the chair in February 2015. And you know, so that's 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 his entire career. Sure. Michael Tannenbaum uh, joined the firm, I believe, in 2001, and he became the chair in 2007. Uh, what one one source told me, you know, if you look at a lot of the people who left, they they weren't lifers, they were laterals, and they didn't have that deep investment in the firm. Um, and that that office in D.C. I mentioned that partner group that went to Kroll and Mooring. They that was a boutique led by Richard Wallace, and they they joined Sedgwick and formed that office in 2011. They had only been at the firm for less than six years when they moved on mass to Kroll. So I you know I I, I think that was certainly a factor, um, and certainly talking to a, a lot of the people at, at, at who used to be a partner at Sedgwick or a staffer at Sedgwick, that was definitely a dynamic that they had witnessed that there was this. This, this this tension or this divide. And that seems kind of logical. I mean, you would imagine that if things start to get a little rough at your firm, if you haven't been there for that long, if someone else makes you a good offer or you have aspirations to maybe strike out on your own, you just don't feel that connection. You but don't I'm have sh- that loyalty the same way someone that's been there for decades. But I'm does. sure as as someone as one of those lifers that it's hard to see then people viewing those exoduses as like the sign that the firm is collapsing. Sure. That, that you know, these people who you don't view as as right. sort of. Yeah. No, I think it was definitely a painful decision for people to leave. Some of the people who left near the near the end of the firm's lifespan, when it became clear that no deal was going to be reached, mm-hmm. and it became clear that you know the firm was just was was not going to succeed. Um, I don't know exactly at what point. You know, Michael Healy told me in August that the firm was pursuing a number of strategies and was trying to right size itself. But mm-hmm. you know, a, a little more than two months later, a source told me that the firm had canceled their Christmas party. Oof. So. That's never a good sign. That's not a that's not a good sign. So you know, I, I it's hard to say at what point it became it became clear that that the the firm was not going to, to to make it through the end of the year. And I think you know one indication of that is almost all of the partners have moved on to other firms. Yeah, uh, that was something Healy actually told me that in January. He's at Shook Hardy and Bacon now in their San Francisco office, and he told me that all the lawyers at Sedgwick have job offers. Broadly speaking, I mean most big law shops are, you know, endeavoring to, you know, expand or at least trying to expand. And I mean, it's very interesting that that was at least a factor in their 
downfall here. I mean, do you have any other sort of big takeaways from the many months you spent reporting it? Honestly, I, I wish that I had a better sense of the firm's financials because I feel like that's, yeah. that's sort of the elephant in the room when we're yeah. talking about this story. And I, you know, I don't have, I obviously don't have their ledger sheet in front of me. Nobody. <laughs> Too bad. As, 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 as generous as a lot of the sources were in, in, in talking to me and giving me their time, you know, that's, that's, that's the sort of thing that, you know, I still don't know. But obviously, I think suffice it to say, you know, a firm that's, that's doing profitable and where the rainmakers feel like they're getting paid what they deserve and they like it there, they don't leave. Right. Um, and so suffice it to say, that was certainly a factor here. So Alex mentioned it and you've mentioned it throughout that you spent a lot of time on the phone with, with folks working on this story. You know, is there something that, 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 is there something that you took away from this, from, from the, like when we're telling the story of Cedric, what it was and, and, and why it went down? Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know th- this may sound glib, but you know we, we we write a lot about cases here, and we we write about the personalities behind these cases. But what this really crystallized for me is that uh, attorneys are people too, mm-hmm. and that uh, a law firm is not a company; it's a partnership. And that these were people's careers and lives and relationships. A lot of them had invested very deeply in it. Um, a lot of those phone calls with with sources were were very emotional, um, particularly when they didn't know what was going to happen with the firm necessarily. Um, you know, so I, I think that's that's something not to lose sight of here that, you know, when an 85 year old firm closes, uh, you know, with, with a couple weeks notice, um, it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Thanks for being with us, Sam. Thank you. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we've brought in one of our favorite guests, Jody Godoy, this week. Hey, Jody. Hey. Jody. Glad to so be back. We brought you in because you attended something that sounded really fun, and we wanted to talk about it. Can you tell us what you had the pleasure of attending this past week? Oh, yes. So I just attended the New York City Bar Association's 12th Night Musical Comedy this year it was entitled "The Devil and Preet Bharara." Okay, so, ask me anything. Yeah, I well, when 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 the gang first said, "Okay, there was a Preet Bharara musical, and we're going to talk about it," I assumed fake news. I didn't. I didn't think such a thing <laughs> actually happened. But, no, the gods are good. Okay, so so this is something that the Bar Association does like every year, right? They do like a little tribute of some high profile figure in the legal right. community. Yeah, it's like an it's an illustrious tradition. It's put on by the bars. Entertainment committee. Um, <laughs> okay. I think they've done like Judge Rakoff before. Yeah, right. okay. and, like people you would Judge, know. Judge Rakoff. They've done Thomas Dewey, the former governor. Oh, and sure. Found one of the f- partners of your guys' other favorite topic, Dewey. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. I really We're am psyched there, about talking about this Preet one because <laughs> yeah. it sounded like from your write up about this, Jody, that it was one of the funniest ones. The headline, it, the it headline really of, of of Jody's story, by the way, was New York lawyers bring Barrara's nightmare to life, which got a which got a smash click from me. So that was good. So what? <laughs> so what right. was it like? So, so so you were there. Tell us about tell us about the show. So <laughs> right. So the these folks on the New York City Bar Association. They put together this show, uh, they write it, and they, they write lyrics for these songs. And this was a, you know, it was a tribute and a sort of lampoon of Preet Bharara's headline-grabbing career. Yeah. What was, like, the story, like, even before we get to some of the musical numbers, which are, uh, you know, d- delightful treasures in their own right, what was, like, the main... What was like the story? Let's talk about the structure, the art, the artistic. Yeah. What was the through line of the? What about of like the you know the uh, the dramatic imperatives of the uh, of the story? Right. So there's a former Simpson Thatcher lawyer uh, named Michael Chipiga who wrote this story, and it starts with 
uh, it starts with the kind of the bar association. It's kind of like it's got a lot of layers, uh, and it's hard to recreate here. Yeah. But essentially, the the crux of the plot is uh, Preet's going on trial to find out whether or not he really loves crime, and the this whistleblower <laughs> who turns out to be spoiler alert the devil is accusing him of really being in love with crime because he just loves prosecuting it so much and he depends on it for his career. So this is like... How meta. Yeah, yeah. this is like a damn Yankees or like Dr. Faust yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. right? It's like the like, See, I'm just thinking devil. devil went down to Georgia. It's well, like sure. in my head kind of thing. Yeah. All right. And I mean, I say this... Do you? I have so many. I have so many questions, Jody, and I don't know if you. Have, <laughs> I mean, I saw it, and so do I. I don't know if. Yeah, right. I don't know if you have the answers to all of them. Sure. But like, without getting too nerdy about it, like, how did was the? Can you comment at all on the production value? Because these people are like working attorneys. Oh, I wonder how yeah. much. I wonder how much time. So much time and work, and and obviously a labor. Of, it was obviously a labor of love. Okay. Um, for folks to come and and you know they had a, a small stage set up in in the bar association. Uh, sort of uh, room that they do, you know, they have speakers and they, they host. So it was like a conference there. room. They was weren't like it was, at, well, it was, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if, if they were like, if we Alex were like a Alex is basically like or... sussing out, like, could Law 360 have one of these and could Alex <laughs> audition for it? Hey, listen, I don't know if I've ever disclosed this on the podcast. Before I studied journalism for about a year and a half in college, I studied theater at, ah, uh, at, at okay. Illinois, at Illinois right. State University. Proud alma mater of newly minted Academy Award nominee Lori Metcalf. Oh, that's so neat. So there you go. Uh, that's not remotely on topic, but tell us about some of uh, the highlights of the show. Right. So, so you got you've got this group of folks, and some of them were previously recording artists in a former life. Okay. Um, you know, some of them are just, I guess, judges and attorneys who really love musical theater. And, and God bless them for it. Yeah. And yeah. so, so they 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 had these numbers that were you know set to the tunes of other familiar songs. Mm-hmm. For example, um, you had uh, a song about pre leaving the Southern District, also known as SDNY, yeah. set to American Pie. Okay. And and the lyrics went something like, bye, bye, sovereign SDNY. Wow. I, I wouldn't pledge my fealty. I'll kiss my job goodbye. That is... So um... it, was, it was amazing. Hold Trump back and make it That's high art, yeah. right yeah, there. Yeah, that's pretty great. I what 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 else? <laughs> so one, I think one of my favorite numbers, and this was sung by uh, Proskauer, um staffer named Jen- Dennis Quinio, and then see, an in-house are, attorney, like Leah Brooks. Yeah, they are yeah. real attorneys. These are legitimate attorneys, <laughs> Sorry, but they have no, they have a passion for so telling Preet story in a funny musical way. Um, so right, so they they sung this song called Preet Loves Press. Oh yeah, <laughs> set to be our guest from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> He just loves it when he's mentioned that he garners more attention. Or how he brought an extra down to That is perfect. Can hear it ringing yeah, in my ears right. now. It was That's so nice. so catchy and just amazing. <laughs> and not um, not true enough in our in our experience. I'm waiting for a call back from Pre. He never he never returned my calls when he was in office. But, um, <laughs> Uh, did anyone do? Did anyone do like a little John Yin Yang Twins? Oh, preet 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 barara! Did anyone do that? <laughs> no, but you know. Oh, okay. I'll See, you Alex, the... Alex could really be writing these for the bar association. <laughs> so I say the guy who wrote, who writes the lyrics to this, his name's Bruce Turkle. He's an, a court attorney up in the Bronx. This is just 
his like a side project for him. He's done other ones. And so I do know from reading your story, Jody, there's also a wrinkle here where uh, Bruce Springsteen was brought into this whole thing. Right. Because because, you know, anyone that follows Preet on Twitter knows that he's a big fan of, of the boss. Yeah. And um, so big part in of the, the region, the plot twist is that he uh, that Preet has to decide whether or not he would prosecute Bruce Springsteen. Oh, wow. And Bruce <laughs> Springsteen is played is. by a magistrate judge. Okay. Oh, my God, that's great. Um, it's just, it was so, so good. <laughs> so did they have any actual Springsteen numbers in the show, or did they just use him they as, like, a character? They did have a Springsteen number. And I'm, you know, I mean, if someone asked me, hey, set um, something about Preet Bharara to a Bruce Springsteen song, yeah. I would have done, I couldn't even approach. I would probably, I would probably guess, like, Rosa Prita. Not Rosalita, <laughs> but I think well, they did, they did like bo- what they did like Born to they Run, did right? Born to Run, okay. I, the iconic tune. Yeah, and it it sort of depended on the idea that if that Bruce didn't know that Preet was a prosecutor, and if he had known, then you know it's that his fans it was guys like you pointing at Preet. My fans are gonna shun. Wow. Oh, rhyming on wow. Born to Run. This wow, so, they really worked out a lot. for Yes, yeah. good. You know, I mean. For many years, the New York legal community has had a pretty transparent love affair uh, with Preet, uh, and I'm glad I'm glad they got to consummate it in this way. Really... <laughs> and, and, and the man himself was there. Um, oh yeah, and flanked by a couple of you, his. Did you see him? What was his reaction yeah, from to this? He, you know, he was uh, at, at the end of the show. He got to give a little bit of a you know quote unquote rebuttal, and <laughs> he told the audience that he was texting his his daughter some some snaps from the. From the musical, <laughs> and he read some of her responses. It's pretty poor theater etiquette from Preet, by the what, way. But what anyway. even is this show? <laughs> what, who are these show? people? His daughter is sixteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's bewildered. But no, well, he, he he had a good time. It seemed like, and he like had some laughs. Ah, uh, that was great, Jody. Thanks for telling us all about the show. Thank you. Thanks. That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks as always. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Sam Reisman and Jody Godoy. Contributing reporters, Andrew McIntyre and Ben Guerreri. A special thanks to Rita Warner at the New York Bar Association. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.